If you would please stand as we prepare to read the Word of God this morning. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 127. If you don't have a Bible with you, please feel free to use the blue Bible in the seat back in front of you. Uh, it'll be on page 298 of that Bible. And if you need a Bible, feel free to take that one home. That's our gift to you. Psalm 127, a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, the children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Thus saith God's word. Thank you, Gabe. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the exciting word that Tia brought us, Lord. Thank you for the worship that we've had in your presence. And now, Lord, we thank you for the word that will be spoken. We thank you for the truth that is contained in your word. We thank you that God is not a man that he should lie and that every word of God proves true. Lord, we thank you that you have called us here together and you have uh, drawn us by your great grace. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would do a work in our hearts, our so easily distracted hearts, that we would we would look to your word, Lord, to be changed, to be transformed, to be encouraged, to be uh, corrected, Lord, whatever is necessary in our hearts, Lord, we surrender to your word to do what your word does. And Lord, I ask for myself, Lord, that you would give me the divine enablement, Lord, that only you can give so that I might speak accurately, Lord, that you would, um, God, take full control of my mind and my tongue so that I would not uh, speak anything that would be a reproach to Christ, but Lord, that I would uh, glorify you in the presentation of your word. And I thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So here we are in our series on the songs of ascent that are found in Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, 15 hymns, and we've come to the only one that is attributed to someone other than David. In this particular uh, psalm, uh, it's attributed to David's son Solomon, King Solomon. And the people, as we've said over and over, who originally sang this song, who, who were singing these songs, or these songs of ascent as they're called, uh, they were making their way to Jerusalem. And now this is interesting uh, in, as it pertains to this psalm in particular, because they're making their way to Jerusalem, and they're specifically to the temple, the construction of which was overseen by Solomon, the writer of this hymn. And so we see allusions to the temple in the very first verse. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Now this 
is a verse of very wide application. However, this probably, in the mind of its original author, Solomon, isn't referring to just any old construction project. More than likely, given the, collect, the, the context of this collection of psalms that for people that are traveling to this temple and uh, the, the, taken in, in consideration who wrote it, um, the one who built that temple, um, the construction of God's house, the Jerusalem temple, is probably what is in view when we talk about building the house. The story of Solomon's building of the temple is found in 1 Kings 5-9. through 9. Just by sheer providence, in the Bible reading plan that I read, I read this just last week, so it was really kind of cool to have those kind of things converge, where we were in this uh, in this series, plus what I was reading in my own time. And in these chapters, we see that the most skilled laborers, using the most advanced plans of their day, built the temple in seven years. Now, this temple was an unbelievable structure, incredible structure. They used tons and tons of gold in the process and the best timber available to build this place and they did it with excellence because this is the place on earth where God's glory would reside. But in Solomon's dedication prayer in, in, first, in first Kings chapter 8, he acknowledges that none of this temple building would have happened without the will of God, the express will of God being fulfilled, and without God's blessing, his protection, and his providence. In other words, Solomon was saying you know, even though God had used him, he had, he had prophesied through David that his son Solomon would build the temple, even though God had used him, he turns around in this dedication prayer and says, nope, it's all God. God did this. Unless the Lord builds a house, the others who labor, labor in vain. Solomon wanted the ancient pilgrims who would be making this journey year in and year out to the temple to know that this house, this temple which they were traveling to, was the gift from the Lord of all. That it was, it was not so much just a vain symbol of national pride. It wasn't the Israelites' house. It was God's house. And this, this is proven in the language of the text. And this, the language that the, that the original writer used is so often misunderstood by us. What does it say? Unless the Lord builds. And and yet we often interpret it to say something like, unless the Lord helps, unless the Lord allows, but that's not what it says. The building of the house is attributed entirely to the Lord alone, not in partnership. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, then again, doesn't say if the Lord helps build the house or allows the house to be built. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, but notice also that it doesn't say the Lord builds the house so the laborers have nothing to do. No, laborers are working as the Lord builds. Just let that sink in for just a second. Who's building, the laborers or the Lord? Well, the Lord's building and the laborers are laboring. The argument isn't being made that no labor is necessary but the argument is being made that if the Lord isn't the one building, all labor is in vain. 
And the word, that word vain is one of Solomon's favorite words, if you've ever read the book of Ecclesiastes. Vain means that it's empty, that it's meaningless, that it's destined to come to nothing. And so what I want you to see when we talk about God building and labor's laboring is that both can be true. The Lord builds as we labor in obedience, in prayer, in study, in faithfulness and trial, in worship and in sharing the gospel. The Lord builds his house as he intends. If we apply that to our modern life in the, in the covenant that we're walking in with God, what that tells us is that we did not work to earn our salvation. We did not work to build our house, the, the, the house of where, where God dwells now, this temple wherein the Holy Spirit resides. We didn't do that. We work only for the end of glorifying God in his plan. All of the, the things that we do as Christians, and, and dare I say that we're commanded to do as Christians, are not to earn or secure anything. They are a, a return gift of gratitude for what God has already built. Matthew sixteen eighteen, great scene. Jesus has come to his disciples and he said, who do men say that I am? And they give him all kinds of answers. Oh, they say you're Elijah, you're Jeremiah, you're whoever. And, and then he turns the question very personally. He says, he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter steps up, as Peter normally does, and speaks, and he says, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Now, he didn't say Elijah or Jeremiah. He put him in an entirely different category. He said, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the one that's coming. And, and you came here by God. And, and Jesus looks at him and says, you are blessed, Simon, because Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. What he's saying is, Simon, you ain't smart enough to have figured this out. But he said, the Lord, the, the, your father in heaven has revealed this to you. And then Jesus turns and he gives this incredible, powerful blessing over Peter and, and gives us great information about his church. This way he says, he says in Matthew 16, 18, and I tell you, you are Peter. Now notice what happens here. Peter tells Jesus in response to his question who Jesus is. And when he gets it right, guess what Jesus does? He turns around and tells Peter who Peter is. That's incredible to me. And he says, I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, watch this, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is a builder. And unless the Lord builds the house, we all labor in vain. It, it's meaningless. It's empty. It's nothingness. To build our own salvation, as Tia was talking about, through mysticism or superstition or self-will or self-righteousness or even religion is vain. It is empty. It's meaningless. To build up a church on market research and accommodation and worldly wisdom is vain and empty and meaningless. The Lord alone always reserves the right to build in the Lord's ways. And yet, and yet, though that's true, and Jesus said, Peter, I will build my church, and yet Peter was given much work in the kingdom of God. It's a fascinating, almost ironic thing. And he accomplished much. 
But he always knew that he was the laborer who was working for the master and he was working according to God's design and God alone was the architect. Unless the Lord builds the house, those that labor, labor in vain. The point of verse 1 is that all of the effectiveness of our labors and all the things we care about, it's totally dependent on the operation and the providence of God. All human strength, all human care, all human industry in itself is vain, empty, and meaningless. I can prove this. Genesis chapter 11, very familiar story. The human race, all speaking one language, gathers in the plain of Shinar to build a monument to their wisdom. So they'd have something to look at and say, look how awesome we are. And this is what they said in Genesis 11 chapter 4. They said, then they said, come, let us build ourselves. Notice the language here. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The, 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 uh, uh, they had this incredible unity, and the unity was on the basis of being bigger than God. And though they spoke with a single tongue, God looked from heaven, as it says in Psalms chapter 2, and laughed. And God came down, confused their language, and did, in fact, disperse them over the face of the whole earth. They labored, but they labored in vain, for the Lord was not the builder It was empty. It was meaningless. And many today, many of us, many of the people we know, many of the people around us, labor in business, in families, in religion, in relationships, and many other places where the Lord is not the builder. And this will never end in peace. Never. It'll never end in anything but emptiness. Even if there's an appearance on the, on the front side of acquiring wealth or peace or satisfaction, let me assure you that it is all fleeting. Those people on the TV that are rolling in cash, that, that uh, just seem to thumb their nose at God and prosper in doing it, I'm telling you that is an illusion that will come to a swift end some day it will end in destruction this is what uh the prophet we studied this a few months ago the prophet haggai in the in the minor prophets he's prophesying to his people and this is what god says through haggai to the people he says you've sown much and you've harvested little you eat but you never have enough you drink but you never have your fill you clothe yourselves but no one is warm And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. The issue in Haggai is building. They're building their own stuff, their houses and their farms and everything else, while the temple of God remains an absolute ruin. And what happened? All of their building turned out to be vain and empty and meaningless. Not only... Did Solomon want the people to know that the temple was a gift from God, built by God, but that Jerusalem itself wasn't a city of magical protection, but rather that its safety and security depended solely on the Lord. And without his hand, 
the city, the holy city, was absolutely doomed. Psalm, uh, the, the uh, last half of verse 1 says, Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Now, as we saw before with this image of the laborer, the suggestion isn't being made that well-armed watchmen shouldn't watch over the city in the dark of night. But, it, that it, but it's this, that if the Lord is not the one who is protecting them, no one is ever really safe if the Lord's not doing the protecting. The scriptures show us several great men, David, Gideon, Samson, Joshua, and it portrays them as great protectors of their people. You'd see this pattern that when enemies would attack, the people would cry out and God would raise up men like David, Gideon, Samson, Joshua. He'd raise up men like them to fiercely defend Israel. But what I want you to notice, if you were to take the time this afternoon and read every one of those stories, David before Goliath, Gideon facing the Midianites, Samson stripped and blind in the Philistine temple, and Joshua opposite the walls of Jericho, all of them depended on God alone. None of them were boasting in their own strength, but they all depended on God alone. In fact, David wrote in Psalm 18, he trains my hands for war. He did not come in and say, man, I am God's man of the hour. Stand back, watch this. No, he knew that if he didn't have God to depend on, that he would be defeated just like all of his foes. He says, he trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. What he, what's he saying there? He's saying, what would be impossible I can do when Christ is my helper, when he's my defender. They attributed their victories to God alone, though they were the ones in the natural realm holding the sword, the spear, and the shield. Now listen to me. How does this apply to you? I'm assuming that none of you are facing Philistine giants this afternoon. I'm wild guess, but I'm assuming that's true. I'm assuming that none of you will be standing in a pagan temple having your eyes plucked out, wanting to have one last act of revenge for God's glory. I'm assuming that's the true case. I hope it's not the case for you. But this does apply to us today. Because see, what I want you to know is that you can get all of the life insurance, all of the health insurance that money can buy. You can be a super saver, socking away tons of cash so that perhaps you can have an early retirement in Tahiti somewhere. You can arm yourself to the teeth with gun after gun and and piles and piles of ammo. But if the Lord is not keeping you, it will all be in vain. Every single bit of it. He and he alone is our keeper. And the beauty of that is he says in Psalm 121, we read just a few weeks ago, that the one who keeps Israel, and you are spiritual Israel, the one who keeps Israel never sleeps. He never slumbers. He never abandons his post. He's watching over you. And if he's not watching over you, you are in big trouble. Trouble that you cannot scramble fast enough to save yourself out of. People make all kinds of plans to prepare for the unexpected. 
The, the, but the Bible says in Proverbs 21, 31, the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. You can make all the preparations you want. And I'm not against that. In fact, the Bible, also in the book of Proverbs, always encourages us to make preparations. But we prepare as we trust in the Lord. We don't, we don't prepare so that we don't have to trust in the Lord. We prepare as we trust in the Lord. So people make all kinds of plans to prepare for the unexpected, but we have no guarantees in this life. Instead, we place our trust in the Lord our God who is faithful to us in this life. Now, here's the real cool part. He's not only faithful to us in this life, but he is near to us right by our side, even in the moment of our death. The Lord is the one watching over us every moment. And aren't you glad? Solomon goes on to sum up these truths in verse 2. Verse 2 says, it is vain, there's that word again, that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. These two verses teach us that we are to do what we can do. We are to labor. We are to keep watch. And, and we're supposed to do what is responsible for us to do. But we can't do that without properly acknowledging that the Lord alone can do what we cannot do. For a moment of tremendous humility, can any of us in this room with a raised hand acknowledge that there are things we cannot do? All right, a lot of honest people. few liars, a lot of honest people here today. We're called as Christians, as believers, to trust Him with our salvation, as well as with our life, our health, our finances, and every other temporal thing, knowing by faith that He's watching and He's protecting. But the key word in this psalm so far has been that word, vain. And we've been warned about the vanity of our arrogance in thinking that our self-fueled labor or our self-regarding defenses amount to anything. Unless the Lord, unless the Lord, unless the Lord, everything else is in vain. And that's the first step to, to the power of the gospel, to realize that there is nothing I can do to save myself. There is nothing I can do, as Tia just shared with us, to cleanse my soul of all its wickedness and sin. Unless the Lord builds the house, I am laboring in vain. And we see this arrogance of all these things. Unless the Lord does it, it's all in vain. And we see the vanity of this restless, self-preserving motivation. We get up early to get a head start and we stay up late to get ahead of the next day. But this is not the diligence that Proverbs speaks so much about that God commands and, and or commends rather. It's restlessness. And restlessness is a symbol not of trust, but of mistrust. You mistrust the Lord as you work yourself to death instead of trusting patiently and restfully for his provision. And all this results in is a dry 
crusty, moldy meal. The psalm calls it the bread of anxious toil. You drive yourself and drive yourself and drive yourself to get more and more and more, and you're never able to look at it and say, that's enough. I have enough. You don't enjoy in this temporal realm. You don't enjoy your food or your rest because you're so anxious thinking that you yourself are solely responsible for your provision. Solomon says that by comparison to this kind of lifestyle, he gives his beloved sleep. And this is not the sleep of exhaustion where you just collapse because you can't physically go on anymore. It's the sleep of of satisfaction. It's the sleep of trust and of peace. It's the gift to the person who, after doing all he or she can, can walk away, lay down, joyfully acknowledging that the Lord is good and He is in absolute control of our lives. Psalm 3, verse 4, David says, I cried aloud to the Lord and He answered me from His holy hill. I lay down and slept, and I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Think about our Savior on the Sea of Galilee. The storm is about to put that boat under. Where is Jesus? He's sleeping in the bottom of the boat. Now, can we be honest enough and throw off all of our our sanctimonious faces and say, that would have ticked us off, right? I mean, that would have really irritated us if we'd been in the boat knowing that we had the Savior of the world with all the command over nature in the boat and he's sleeping and we're about to die. We're, we, we laugh at those disciples. We would have been no better. I promise you that. I would have been freaking out in that boat. I promise you that. I, do not admi- I, I don't mind admitting to you the weakness of my own faith. But here's Jesus. He found himself a pillow that's probably sopping wet. I say that every time the Bible says he's laying on a cushion. I think it's probably sopping wet, and he's still sleeping like a baby while the storm rages furiously. And the disciples, as I mentioned, are anxious and they're fearful, but not the Lord's beloved. He says, Solomon says he gives his beloved sleep. Is there anybody who is more beloved of the Lord than the Lord Jesus? And he slept. Why? Because he knew that he was safe in the Father's hand. Unless the Lord keeps the boat, those who are rowing are rowing in vain. (laughs) See, what's so cool about this idea that the Lord gives those he loves sleep is that the Bible even calls the death of the saints. What does it call it? It calls it sleep. So this world is going to, long after you and I are gone, is going to go on in its restlessness, raging and and fighting to get ahead and uh, fighting to prove their importance, while all of us who have trusted in the Lord Jesus are sleeping peacefully, awaiting the trumpet of God that will signal our resurrection. Man, what a day that's going to be. So tonight, 
as you lay your head on your pillow, thank God for the gift of peaceful sleep. Even if you're someone who does not sleep easily or peacefully, remember this promise. And ask the Lord, say, hey, God, make tonight my night. I'm going to relinquish all of my restless tossing and turning, and I'm asking you to give the gift of peaceful sleep, wrapped in the reminder that he alone is your keeper and your protector, and withdraw and rest in him confident of his loving providence. Now, this psalm started with the idea of building a household or a kingdom, but what is a kingdom if not a collection of households? And Solomon will now, he's going to narrow his focus and show us the Lord's blessing right under our own roofs. Verse 3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior or children of one's youth, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The latter half of the psalm makes a bold countercultural statement. See, right now, our culture is embroiled in a war of worldviews. One side is insisting, as this passage, that children are a blessing, while the other side promotes the idea that children are oftentimes just an inconvenience. And the right to kill them in the womb is demanded as some kind of sacred right enshrined in our laws. But throughout the pages of Scripture, children are always viewed as an element of God's promise to bless his people. And to, to deny that they're a blessing, to, to deny that they have any value and that they're of no more value than an intestinal parasite is to deny the witness of Holy Scripture. Supporting the infanticide of abortion, if I'm not being clear enough, demands your repentance. The Scriptures demand it. Here, Solomon calls children an inheritance. A, a person doesn't work for an inheritance. Think about that. You know, you don't work for an inheritance. You receive it freely from the generosity of your parents who prepared that inheritance for you. And similarly, God grants children not on the basis of our work or deserving them, but as a gift of his grace. And how tragic if we despise the gift of his grace that was meant for our joy. But he also calls them a reward. Now, that's an interesting term because, the, you know, we always think of a reward as a prize. Hey, you won this reward, but, but a reward here more speaks of wages, something you're paid. And God provides children for his people not to deplete their fortunes, as it feels like so often, amen, moms and dads, not to deplete their fortunes but actually, or their futures, but actually to enrich them. And Solomon says that our children are like arrows in our hands. Man, what a poetic image that is. If we unpack that, this idea of them being arrows, we'll realize and we'll recognize that arrows don't grow on trees. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever seen an arrow tree? No. What trees produce are these curled and knotted sticks, and great care has to be taken to shape such a stick into an arrow. It has to be straightened and has to be sharpened with great skill, with patient hands and tremendous wisdom. The reward 
or wage that the children are comes from crafting our sons and our daughters into arrows that can be aimed and fired straight toward the bullseye of God's purpose for them. That's where the reward comes in. That's where the wage comes in. That is the payoff. Seeing them mature in Christ, your boys and your girls, that is the payoff for years of parenting. This last few months, I became officially a member of the Empty Nesters Club. And and I got to tell you, it was a little tough. It's still a little tough. Sometimes I'll think, I wonder when Jason's getting home. Well, I guess in about five years when he gets out of grad school. Um, and, but I got to tell you, there is a great satisfaction. Two of them are here this morning to know that all of my sons are walking with Jesus. That is just, it made all the headaches, all the tears, all of it worth it. I am being paid in spades because of the fact that my kids love Jesus Christ. And I'm so grateful. Proverbs 22.6 famously says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Listen to me. I know when I say what I just said about my boys and other things, it could actually be a little tinge of pain for some of you parents who, for whatever reason, your kids are not serving the Lord now. But listen to me, please, carefully. Parents, no matter where your kids are, Stay the course. Stay the course. Your children, no matter where they're at right now, mom and dad, your children are a blessing. They're not a curse. They're an inheritance to you. They are not a loss. They're a reward to you and not a debt. And as long as there is breath in your body and breath in theirs, you can still be used by God to shape them, to influence them, to fire them towards their destiny. As long as you can pray for their salvation, your cause is not lost. And don't ever forget that. You matter. You matter. Verse 5 said, Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Now, there's a movement uh, that suggests that Christian couples should have as many children as biologically possible on the basis of this verse. Now, while I'm convinced that all children, whether you have one, five, or 20, I'm convinced that children, that no matter how many you have, children never turn to a curse. They're always a blessing. I believe that. However, I'm not sure that that is what this verse necessarily means. I am sure, without a doubt, that being that part of being married as believers involves welcoming children into your homes. This may be the most controversial thing I said in months, but I think that it is highly unlikely that God gives married men and women the, the, the liberty to decide not to have children. I think that's part of the purpose of having... Now, don't worry. I know that there's, sometimes there's nothing you can do about that. But I'm saying it's obvious from Scripture that children are preferable in homes. And this is the reason, and we should always be willing to welcome children into our homes, and this is the reason that the, the ESV translates this verse actively. 
It says, blessed is the man who fills, who makes an effort to fill his quiver with, with arrows. But the King James has it kind of passively. It says, the one who hath his quiver full. But here's what I want you to understand. Before you get nervous and say, well, Mark's going to start this cult, and we're all going to have 60 kids now, and it's going to be crazy, and they're, you know, we're all going to be pulling our hair out by the roots. That's not what I'm saying. What I want you to know is that not everyone's quiver is the same size. See, we always think that, that or you know, in this movement, they think that, that having your quiver full means just you know, as long as there's ability in your body to keep stuff and arrows in your quiver. But I don't think that's what it means. I think that the, the idea is that some quivers are of different sizes, and there's a number of circumstances that rightly limit the number of our children. Perhaps there are infidelity or other health issues that, that are, are just within the sovereignty of God and outside of your control. Perhaps there are circumstances that would prohibit the wisdom of having many children, such as if you are called to high-risk foreign missions. Perhaps a child, a first child or second child, is born with severe special needs that require an inordinate amount of time from the parents, and and you, you really can't distribute much more time to other children. God understands that. At that point, your quiver is full. The point is not that someone should continue having children, though some are called to do that. I've known uh, great families that uh, my daughter-in-law comes from a family with 10 siblings, and it's an incredible thing to see how God's using that. Some people are called to that. But the point is that we should be willing to have as many kids as God wants us to entrust us with until our quiver is full, no matter what that looks like in our particular case. Uh, the the uh, great Bible commentary Matthew Henry said, I'm paraphrasing just a little bit, but he said, the God that sends mouths into our home always sends meat for those mouths. And, and the idea is if God blesses you with 5, 10, 20 children or one or two children, he is going to provide for the children that he provides. How many of you parents have seen that to be the case? One of the greatest ways, and why is this all important? It seems like to some of you may have seen I take a detour from the Lord building the house talking about kids, which is kind of what it seems like the psalm does. But I think that the ideas are more connected than that. Because one of the greatest ways that Christian people make an impact in this world is by bringing children into it. That is the way that, that Christians make an impact in the world. And raising them in the fear and the admonition of the world. What a tragedy to call yourself a Christian and to make no effort as a parent to guide your children into the truth of the gospel, or to fill their lives watching you prioritize much lesser things. The tragedy. The person who forms his children into arrows and fires them on ahead for Christ's sake shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. In ancient days, the gates of the city were the place where legal cases were decided. And Solomon is saying that a person with many godly children will have advocates when their cause is challenged. See, the gospel you believe right now is being ch challenged in the gates every single day. The world would teach our kids, with, with or without your consent, that life is meaningless, that they can decide their own gender no matter what God has, has done through biology to make them, that money and power are the paths to happiness and many other ungodly philosophies. But the children of godly parents 
will advocate for the truth when trained rightly in the covenant. They will stand for the truth and give an answer long after you're gone. That's the beauty of it. So how does the Lord build a house? He does it through godly offspring. And those that labor otherwise will only eat the bread of anxious toil. They'll try to watch over their home with the latest child psychology while timeless wisdom from the word gathers dust on the shelf. But unless the Lord builds the house and watches the city, it is all in vain. How does the Lord build up the church? By raising up spiritual children for Christ and watching over his work in them and bringing it to completion. So in closing, let me encourage you this morning to trust the Lord to build his house, even as you labor according to his plans. And thank him for his unceasing watchfulness when you lay your head down to receive his promise of sleep. And he will take care of you. And thank him on the happy days and on the frustrating days for the gift of your children. And plead with him for the grace, no matter how old they are, no matter how old you are, to launch them into a God-pleasing destiny. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Unless the Lord keeps watch over the city, the watchman wakes in vain. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your construction that you're building a spiritual house for Christ, of which we are living stones. We thank you that you are building a temple in us individually to be the house and the temple of the Lord. We thank you that you are building homes for us through the church and through the spiritual children that you're bringing in. We thank you that you're building homes in in our natural lives with, with many children and the blessing that they are. And God, we thank you that you even are a God who the Bible tells us takes the solid, the, the solitary, those who are without in this natural realm of family, and you set them in families, and that's what you do through your church. So God, we thank you for this. Lord, build your house. Save us from the arrogance of our own egos, thinking that we're contributing anything without your hand, without your help, without your blessing, without your grace. We thank you for this, Lord. Let this reminder always be before us that all of our efforts are in vain, if not for your building and your watching. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you would stand with me and place your hands in a receiving position, I want to read this benediction over you. Paul tells the Philippians, May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed.